Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, and today for uh, our second entry in our uh, Black History Month series, we're going to be talking another classic American intellectual, um, W.B. Uh, du Bois. I was a little bit confused about how you pronounce that. Uh, I've heard Du Bois, but I, I believe Du Bois is correct. Right, like the actual French French pronunciation. Uh, I can't even pronounce pronounce pronunciation. <laughs> French pronunciation would be uh, Du Bois, but he went by Du Bois. Yeah, yeah. So it's I like believe a, that's right. No, Notre Dame and Notre Dame. Yeah, right? that's right. Merca. <laughs> um. Yeah, and and so yeah, a bit of biography at first. Uh, so he he was uh raised in Massachusetts um went to Oxford and Harvard for his education. He was the first black PhD in the history of Harvard. Uh helped found uh the NAACP National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I'm correct? Um yeah, uh basically just a sort of writer, historian, polymath you know, multi-talented genius type of person. Um, And, you know, worked, uh, he he was born in the 1860s, I believe. Um, And he, he died in 1963. Yeah. Long life. Yeah. He lived a long time and, you know, was basically working against Jim Crow and uh, racism. Um, Big pan Africa guy. For his whole career, and he beca- he became more and more sort of socialist as the time went on, and he died in Ghana, if I'm not mistaken, after having sort of converted to a kind of Afro-communism-ish type of ideology. But yeah, he was uh, I think best known for two books: "The Souls of Black Folk" and "Black Reconstruction in America." Um, the fir- the first of which is a uh, essay collection which is you know just about basically the black experience in the united states in the early 20th century and the second one is certainly his best book and his most well-respected one is uh, uh just a history book about the experience of the civil war and reconstru- the post-civil war period and reconstruction and um yeah, one of America's most significant intellectuals, you know, sort of. I mean, in the, <laughs> I think there's a, dan- a danger in thinking about Black History Month to be like, you know, sort of being a, a little condescending. Or something? Yeah. yeah, it's it's not it's not like a. <clears throat> I think what you know, I mean, I guess the entire idea is a little bit condescending, but uh, I think considered in its best light. Uh, Black History Month is about reminding reminding all Americans about some of the you know like the the very very most important people who have lived in this country, and he is one of the big ones. Right. Yeah. It, it's not something that should be um, sought just one month per year. Um, you know, the recognition of African American and and. Uh, um, and people of great intellect and artistry um, should should always be sought and, and uh, nourish our souls as often as possible. But to the extent that people often overlook and forget, if not 
reminded consciously <laughs> by such things. It's, it's, it's helpful um, to remember. Yeah. Um, maybe we could maybe just talk about the, the souls of black folk and some of his essays. Sure. Uh, I think for, for me, this, um, I've read, I, I reread souls of black folk fairly recently. I've, I've uh, read a bunch of his other essays, but not for a while, but, uh, I think what, what it jumps out to me and why, why it continues to be relevant is that, uh, it, it gives you a, a picture, not just of how, uh, kind of aridly, you know, like, oh, the black white wealth gap is large, you know, that's certainly not good. But what it was like living in a racial caste system and how like the, the the millions of everyday indignities and the petty tyrannies and the not at all petty not so tyrannies petty. Yeah, yeah. Not so petty, right? that that it was like living in, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century under Jim Crow, under an apartheid terrorist sort of, you know, uh, government. Um. And I think it, it speaks to, you know, even today you hear people be like, well, you know, black people should actually th- thank whites because, uh, you know, at least you're not in Africa. Um, because, you know, uh, black people in the in the United States maybe have longer life expectancies than they do in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Though that, you know by even by some of the standards of some fairly poor countries black americans tend to have very bad like comparable to you know places like uh mongolia or or uh, vietnam or something like that um but you know it 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 completely overlooks the you know what what it can be like to to live in like fear of the police for example to to view the police as a sort of occupying force you know as people that are are very rightfully hated and feared and um so the book you know is is a it's it's not you know it's in a sense kind of pitched at sympathetic white people who maybe don't understand exactly i mean not only that but but you know he he pitches it to a, a gentle reader i believe and i think one of the people that he has in mind for that is a sort of well-intentioned white person who maybe just doesn't quite get it doesn't understand what it's really like and that won't understand it because uh, you know, Du Bois is also a sociologist and has many angles uh, from which he can uh, edify and illuminate um, history and uh, culture. But that is not enough, I think, to pierce the privilege and blindness of those who don't understand phenomenology, phenomenologically what it's like. So uh, it's, it's, I think, memoir-esque in the sense that it um, helps one access that interiority. So it's, it's like a spiritually, uh, wise and and profoundly moving, um, series of, of essays that I think can do something for that, you know, sympathetic white person who doesn't get it, uh, if you will, in ways that like the sociological, uh, and historical writings maybe don't as much. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's, of course, you know, I think it's meant as a celebration of black culture as well. You know, Absolute, it's, right. it's not a, right, right, right. it's, it's, it's not only that, of course, it's not just a, sort it's of, me- and it's many things at once. It's also a uh, fantastic, not fan- it's not a fantastic insight, but uh, fantastically predictive. So, uh, you know, one of the essays opens with the line that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And this was at the he wrote this at the very beginning of the twentieth century, yep. right? Uh, so it, it uh, is prescient and, and and definitely is bound up with um, what would become the most important issues of the day. Um, but yeah, exactly. I mean, really, and I'm and this goes to show you, you know, both the the depth of his is uh, insight and and. Uh, you know, just what a sort of polymath he was because like he didn't, he didn't just, you know, write these very lyrical essays and sort of, you know, capture the poignancy of what it's like living in a apartheid terror state. Um, he also had like the political sense to realize that this, you know, this is not going away. And the longer it goes on, you know, the, the, the more important it's going to be, the, the these problems are just going to fester. And he, you know, it was, it, very accurate you know and it, and it's you know in a sense the way that it reminds me of mandela in the 1970s you know and 1960s when apartheid in south africa appeared just almost impregnable you know it's like we could never solve this like we're just gonna be stuck like this forever i was like well give it time you know it's it's the the, the, the situation is more precarious than it seems right right yeah you also uh people might have heard the phrase double consciousness. This is something he, he introduces in the soul of black folk where he talks about, um, the difficulty of, uh, or he might even put it as the impossibility, um, of, um, black Americans having what he calls true self-consciousness because, um, they're only allowed to see themselves through the revelation of the other world. He says it's a, a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. It's good stuff. Yeah, it, it, for me, James Baldwin echoed, echoed that sentiment when we talked about his um, debate with Buckley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 way in which, um, particularly under Jim Crow, but I probably still today, you know, Black Americans have been forced to be citizens of a country which doesn't accept you. You know, and you're you're just pinned down you know and surrounded on every side with these sort of the sort of bullshit hagiography of you know the the land of the home free of the brave or whatever something like that yeah (laughs) (laughs) blue lives matter you know all that kind of well yeah this also to me evokes the uh kind of contempt uh that frederick Douglass had for being asked to give the Right, the, the 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 talk on the Fourth of July, and that I think is a, all about double consciousness as well. The the idea that that Frederick Douglass was supposed to see himself as this liberated American. Are you kidding me? Right? Yeah. <laughs> um. So it's it's uh. 
it's I think it's really really revelatory and and beautiful uh, this work. So I, I don't know what uh, if you want to talk more about the souls of black folk before before we we shift to black reconstruction in America, but it's certainly something we could talk about for quite a while. He does um in here he t- he he uh, talks about Booker T Washington and this is a big divide in the 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 black community the early 20th century you know you had your sort of like accommodationist line you know because even under Jim Crow there was a sort of educated black middle class um of uh preachers and teachers and a few lawyers here and there you know people who did have a little bit of means and you know folks like that tended to be you know not in for entirely unjustified, you know, it was a fairly, uh, you know, reasonable conclusion you might make to just say that like, look, the, you know, these, these white people, they just got all the power and all the money and all the influence got an absolute death grip on this, the levers of power. And so, you know, we should just sort of like let them run things. And in return, you know, maybe they won't murder us too often, (laughs) more or less. And, um, one of, one of his, you know, Du Bois's, uh, going back and forth with that sort of tendency to, and I think one of the, 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 you know, the, the big argument here that is that, you know, that I think, you know, Booker T. Washington and, and folks like him didn't really face up to how bad it really was. That was one of the big things Du Bois did with his journalism, among many others, was to write about, uh, lynchings. And um, how just, you know, the, 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 the daily carnage of the apartheid system in under Jim Crow, that it, it was, you know, the, 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 the terror of it, the terror of it, that, that every day you're living in, um, just in fear. And, and you could never actually get to it. I mean, I believe this is the sort of the argument here that you could never actually get to a spot in which you are sort of like living comfortably as a subservient caste. What you are actually doing is living in just like daily terror that maybe today is going to be me, especially if you're a man, you know, if you're a black man in the South, it's like, you just look at somebody the wrong way or you don't do anything and you just get like butchered and just like tortured to death in front of, you know, hundreds of or thousands of picnicking white people who are like, take your body parts as souvenirs, you know, just the most absolutely psychotic, murderous violence you could imagine. And that was the actual engine of the, you know, the, 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 the political and the social system of Jim Crow. And I think what Du Bois really hammered home again and again was the living in a fear of just horrifying violence um and the ways that that people had to you know just debase themselves in fear yeah and he writes in his conclusion uh about Booker T Washington and his flawed approach in trying to advance uh the rights and well-being um you know black americans he writes that his Booker's T. Washington's doctrine has tended to make 
The whites, North and South, shift the burden of the Negro problem to the Negro's shoulders and stand aside as critical and rather pessimistic spectators, when in fact the burden belongs to the nation, and the hands of none of us are clean if we bend not our energies to righting these great wrongs. And then, and then he goes on to say, uh, but so far as Mr. Washington apologizes for injustice North or South, does not rightly value the privilege and duty of voting, belittles the emasculating effects of caste distinctions, and opposes the higher training and ambition of our brighter minds, so far as he, the South, or the nation does this, we must unceasingly and firmly oppose them. By every civilized and peaceful method, we must strive for the rights which the, world's accord, well, the world accords to men, clinging unwaveringly to those great words which the sons of the fathers would fain forget. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, yeah. For, we were talking about that with uh, Frederick Douglass previously, that that's really been, you know... So uh, from Lincoln through, from Frederick Douglass through Lincoln, through uh, Du Bois, through Martin Luther King, that's been such a, such a great piece of like basically propaganda more or less, you know, to just like, or just a great argument, uh, piece of political rhetoric. It's like, look at, you know, here's your national slogan. Like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) You know, and that's the thing that's interesting to me is you do see, of course, in um, Malcolm X and and up through any number of like even liberation theologians like Jeremiah Wright, uh, a certain goddamn America, uh, you know, forget the whole place kind of approach. But that's not the approach that like Frederick Douglass and Du Bois and Martin Luther King took, which is to say that like. The sins are terrible and they are there, but let's appropriate those ideals upon which the country was founded and actually push to have that realized as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's always the danger, you know, if you're talking about American hypocrisy, be like, here's your stated ideals and you're not living up to them. Because you could go two ways. You could be like, okay, we're doing this injustice. We're going to stop doing the injustice. Or you could be like, we're going to ditch the slogan. We're just going to become openly... Right. Like a horrible fascist country, <laughs> which is what like certain segments want to do, and and actually yeah. to to turn that kind of egalitarian ideal into a um, friend enemy distinction that's quite explicit now. And I mean, you see this in the in the fan base for for Trump, right? It's it's quite clear. No, no, no. we think certain groups don't deserve to even be here. We we think yeah. our rights matter more, and that is even more dangerous, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, which way you go probably doesn't depend on who's quoting the Declaration of Independence, but still, you know, like it's worth keeping in mind, I guess. Yeah, but I think that is is indicative of a broader theoretical underpinning for for certain strains of activism. It's like there's struggle. If there's any progress, there's struggle. But that struggle is motivated by and cognized in in different ways. So, uh, and it's fine, I think, to have... Right, I think you have your your Malcolm X and Black Panthers alongside Martin Luther King, and together they work really well. But I, I think, to, yeah, right. But I think if you have just exclusively the one that is just to put it in a better way, shit canning the entire possibility of um, change in in this country, then um, you know it's that's much a easier to dismiss in that case, you know. But I, yeah, I think as you're saying, the two of them together make for a powerful combination. And and we and and 
probably worth emphasizing like that this conversation between Du Bois and the Booker T. Washington like sort of framework is very much a live issue. And I mean, I think it always has been. There, there really is a sort of organic strain of black conservatism. And um, people people may not remember this, but before he was, you know, just like this horrifying sexual predator, Bill Cosby was very much a Booker T. Washington type of type of guy in terms of his politics, you know, and he go around the country, you know, doing these pull your pants up black people speeches saying that like, you, you know, we, we got to take responsibility and it's, it's a, it's like, it's, it's very American, you know, in, in a sense. Uh, but I think it's, it's wrong. You know, it's not the, it's not the, the fault of, um, you know, in, in so far as black people have different outcomes from white people in America, there's nothing to do with, with black people I, being, yeah. you know, having poor clothing choices. I taught, you know, I've taught a number of students, um, who I understood. So surprised, I was surprised to discover the, um, the reactionary, uh, ideology of certain, uh, young students of color or working adults, um, that were men of color. But then I got to see that it wasn't so much a normative ideal as kind of a descriptive reality. And they, they realized that the system had failed their neighborhoods in them. And if they didn't pull themselves up from their bootstraps, they would not survive. Yeah. And, but so what happened is that knowing that that was true. And if, you know, if, if, uh, if there's teenage pregnancy, then your life is over. Like if these things happen descriptively, that will lead to X, Y, and Z. Therefore you have to have these types of Bill Cosby uh, modes of thinking about things. Cause there's no other option. And, and so I tried to kind of, conceptually separate the descriptive from the normative and say, isn't it unfair and unjust that say a privileged uh, Wall Street trust fund kid can have a golden parachute after helping tank the global economy? Isn't that isn't it unfair that that not just mistake, but malice can go uh, not only without punishment, but then the person can ha- live high off the hog for the rest of his life. Yeah, it'd be profitable to do that. Profitable to they do that. They will pay you money. And to- one teeny mistake or even just... Um, bad luck can lead to your life being over. Isn't that something that as a country we should not permit? And, and then that, that started to, to create a, something, a move away from that reactionary ideology, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess there's a, there's a conceptual distinction there that you could draw to say that, you know, it may be the case that under current, current circumstances, you're, you're, you maybe have a little bit better chance of making it if you do X, Y, and Z. Versus like, you know, here here's why the problems, the broad problems exist. You know, it's like sort of like a personal advice thing versus like why why is society like this? Well, I can see why it maybe is a luxury to be able to sit, you know, from a, as a podcaster or academic and just think theoretically about things when you know your life is very literally in your own hands to some degree, and you, you don't have the um, the time or space to to kind of. Uh, strive for a different reality than the one you're facing. I get that. Uh, but interestingly, this is, it seems like what Corey Robbins new book on Clarence Thomas is going to argue about Clarence Thomas's politics, which is to say that he's conservative, not in the way that Booker T. Washington was, but he was a black nationalist who, who 
didn't and maybe doesn't trust uh, whites and white supremacy at all. And therefore, like liberal people in government are never going to help the black uh, human being. Uh, Therefore, the only way forward is to um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because um, those racist whites will never do anything for you. Yeah. Yeah, that right. That that's like the sort of funhouse mirror image of the <laughs> like the 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 government the government is the white man and so that's why why we need libertarian economic policy. <laughs> right. It's, in, it's totally insane. But meanwhile, he was straight up reactionary and is in in like the misogynist sense of patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is that's another that's another thing that definitely exists in the you know the 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 black tradition and black nationalists especially nation of islam very very misogynist well, and, and a lot of uh, african-american churches uh, many of them are great on on social justice issues and progressive in many ways but often very conservative when it comes to like lgbtq issues or or other things that um, are still quite reactionary in their theology yeah 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 it, uh it was one one thing one area where you could say Barack Obama made a very, very significant public change in public opinion when he, I believe it's 2012 came out for gay marriage. And that really moved the needle by like, like five or 10 percentage points because, you know, it was like basically sort of creating permission and like, just, you know, a lot of African-Americans just was like that sort of like, you know, the straw that push the camels over to the other side of the fence. <laughs> that's exactly how it goes, Ryan. That's that's the aphorism. Yes. I'm <laughs> Captain Malaprop here. Push put, push the camel through the eye of the needle and made it to heaven. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah that's right. Then it broke its back. That's... <laughs> but um um wasn't Biden the one that ruined the uh the political moment that, that Obama was gonna have about that? Didn't Biden like leak the uh, the shift in policy on from what I heard that, that? that he oh I, uh, I'm not sure if this has been settled one way or the other but they, they think they might have sent Biden out to do a sort of trial balloon by saying that like you know we're in favor of gay marriage now whoops maybe not and see if there's a big backlash and and if there wasn't then Obama or, or was. if if Biden personally said that about his views and he got flack then you could imagine yeah, how it you, would play yeah you right. could then you could then you could just say it's just Biden being Biden um With fair point yeah speaking of Obama this this was back in 2014 a big debate between Obama and Jonathan Chait on one hand and Tanahasi Coates on the other hand which is once again the same argument um, it's worth going back. It's too bad Coates doesn't write anything anymore except comic books. But there's it was very. I mean, he just kicked the shit out of Jonathan Chait on this exact question, which is like, do black people need fundamental, uh, you know, re- social and economic reform, or do they need to pull their pants up? You know, and and I think that Coates is completely convincing on that point. Um, before we before we go, there's a, there's a great book that I'd like to recommend that. Um, we were talking about this previously, but uh, Lester Spence, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, he wrote a book called uh, Knocking the Hustle, uh, a great book. And it's basically about how like neoliberalism has infected black culture, um, black politics and black culture, you know, so including like you have, you know, uh, we're here in Philly right now. Uh, the the the. uh, uh 
Michael Nutter, the the, Sorry, the former mayor. Yeah, former mayor, black mm-hmm. guy, did tons of neoliberal mass incarceration stuff. As a Democrat. Mm-hmm. As a Democrat. Um, and then, you know, you find just like like the, the, the hustle culture of hip hop, you know, that like what you need to do is get out there and get that money, you know. Uh, you gotta, you gotta get paid. You gotta, instead of doing, you know, like, like some of those like social justice elements of, you know, maybe run DMC or, or, uh, you know, Tupac, it's more about just like getting paid, you know, getting, uh, uh, conspicuous consumption and, and, uh, having a, you know, expensive car and lots of money and drugs and Hennessy or whatever. So still to this day, very much a live debate. Shall we move on to Black Reconstruction? Let's do it. Very different type of work than the souls of black folk. Yeah, this um, th- this is one of the like top two or three most impressive works of history ever written in the United States, I would say. Maybe number one. It's not the best history book because it has some flaws. And it drags a little in the in the middle parts, um, because it's you know trying to do so many different things at once. But uh, you know what this so this was written in 1935 at the absolute pinnacle of the uh, Dunning School interpretation of Reconstruction, which is this basically the what I would like echoes of this are still present in like practically every school in the country, you know, unless you go to a really cutting edge woke school, um, Dunning school's got a little bit of a purchase on this and birth of a nation, uh... birth of a nation gone with the wind, you know, the sort of like lost cause, like the, the, the whole school of thought that was like, uh, civil war wasn't about slavery that reconstruction the post-civil war period was this like horrible corrupt mess that that like the minute black people got any sort of political power they were horribly corrupt it's all about vengeance yeah and they were they were lording it over the poor helpless ex-confederates and um eventually it was overthrown and that was like a shining triumph and now you know it's like the the much better you know we we have we have home rule again uh in the south and and um you know this was the thinking of uh dunning was at columbia i want to say that's right and but it was also you know woodrow wilson at princeton who showed i think uh birth of a nation as a white house uh screaming yep yep Yep. the idea that that uh you know granting black people the vote was just a terrible mistake and that it was much better, you know, he had sort of a national reconciliation um, papered over the wounds of the of the of the Civil War by agreeing to basically not enforce the the Fifteenth Amendment. Um, and so, yeah, he was writing this book. He's writing it at a time of just like absolutely um, endemic racism in every aspect of society you know so he managed to get his doctorate out of harvard but he's like you know one of the like 10 smartest most able people in the entire country and he can't get anything published um you know he 
I think he uh, we we read this uh, a, a bit of a Foner article about this. He yeah. said that he Eric Foner, the historian. Right? Yeah, he wrote a he. Uh, so Du Bois wrote an article in the American Historical Review, right? And it was sort of like in defense of Reconstruction. I think he wrote that in 1910. I want to say. And it was like the last thing a black person wrote in the American Historical Review, which is like the marquee journal of American his, his, his historical profession until like 1985 or something like that. Decades and decades of a, a racist conspiracy. And so, you were, you know, not publishing black people, not listening to black people, and in some cases literally destroying the records of reconstruction like the the actual archives you know the sort of government the business of government that was done uh at the time um nobody's asking black people who many you know, many of whom who lived through construction are still alive at this time and so like he is writing in the teeth of this gale force current of racism to say that like the entire narrative of reconstruction that is the dominant consensus in American society is bullshit and you know it's and, and why does that matter do you, like what let's let's um and you can proceed if you want by going through his argument but i think it's important to talk about why the different and correct understanding of the of the reconstruction era um matters normatively for us like why is it important to get it right yeah well it was just you know you could it was more or less the first uh the first instance of the civil rights movement that everyone agrees for now you know that like martin luther king national hero um National hero because he got votes for black people in the South. Well, the only reason he needed to do that was because, like, there was just, like, systemic violation of the Constitution from 1877 up through 1965 in the South, where if you're black, more more, more or less you couldn't vote at all. And um, so, you know, it was it, what Reconstruction really was, was... A, a an attempt to build a multiracial democracy in the United States, which had hadn't existed before, and it actually worked for a while, and um, it it was a, an example of a time in which, you know, the the values of democracy, liberal democracy, and and freedom and equality, really mattered and were really taken seriously for for a hot minute basically, in the United States. And then they were forgotten again. But so there was this this shining example of true heroism. And some of the best people who have ever lived in this country uh, really doing, you know, really heroic stuff. Um, you know, innumerable, uh, what, something like 200,000 uh, ex-Union, Ar- black Union Army veterans, down there in the south trying to uh you know build a decent place to live well and that's the other thing that's important normatively in terms of not just reconstruction but going back to even uh the civil war itself uh and through reconstruction and then carrying it forward to today is the the agency of um black americans to actuate and actualize their own liberation 
is something that history, I mean, if history ever acknowledges the agency of black people, it's in the form of like one leader, like Martin Luther King. Yeah. (laughs) It's like this one dude did everything. He was a special case rather than understand that say Rosa Parks was uh, an activist, part of a group of people that uh, were in this struggle together collectively. And this tremendous move towards making that egalitarian vision uh, a reality was something born of that struggle that the oppressed themselves were at the the forefront of and that uh, others followed them right and that that includes going back to the civil war yeah and he um he you know he calls it black reconstruction and and it's sort of like maybe a de- deliberate slight exaggeration cuz it's not just black reconstruction it's reconstruction for every the whole country but what what he argues, and I think mostly successfully, is that black people were the protagonists of the major protagonists of of a the Civil War and b the the Reconstruction period. You know, they the 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 North almost certainly couldn't have won the Civil War without black people, and black people were the sort of primary participants in the Reconstruction drama. You know, which you know, the attempt to build a a a multiracial democracy in the South, and um, he talks about. I think you know, historians dispute whether like this is a correct characterization. But he talks about during the Civil War there was a sort of a general strike of sorts, in the sense that like the the it, as much as they could, slaves during the Civil War. They would slow down, not work as hard, try to try to like gum up the wheels of commerce. And then the second they could run away, run to the union lines and and, you know, try to, you know, try to get to freedom. And that was, you know, at first a huge like pain in the neck for the union policy wise. Like, what do we do with all these people? And then later turned out to be absolutely critical. 200,000 soldiers and probably 300,000 laborers and, you know, otherwise sort of war supporting folks who worked, you know, for the, for the union army. And, um, you know, uh, as Du Bois says, more, more, more black people than as a proportion of the population, more black men served in the, uh, in as soldiers than white people did, and it was it was through that that heroic effort uh, that the tide was turned. Because this is something it's easy to forget about the Civil War. All, Civil wars almost never start out with two the, the dividing the country in half and having a government in one side that has like broad legitimacy. Like conquering a whole country is difficult, and that's what the Union had to do. Um, and especially at that time when defensive tactics were much more effective than offensive tactics, like it took a lot of casualties to finally beat the the Confederates. Um, and arguably, you know, if Robert E. Lee hadn't been too aggressive in the early war, they would have been able to just like batten down the hatches and eventually the Union would have given up. Um, but you know, the fact that the, the, the key labor force 
Du Bois makes this point that the the key labor force that allowed the South to send proportionally more of its white men out to fight also made them gave them a critical weakness because the minute the Union soldiers got close, all the slaves would run away, you know, and that fucked them up bad. But the but and we should say the enslaved people, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but the, the the other interesting thing is the missed opportunity of Reconstruction, or one of the many interesting things. And so, you know, Foner is, is summarizing uh, Du Bois at, at one point and says that the key issue of Reconstruction was the new status of black labor. Would it be genuinely free? And the answer to that question, uh, Du Bois insists, could be worked out only in conjunction with white labor. So, so in the end, the tragedy of Reconstruction was that white laborers in the North and South failed to see that their interests were intimately tied up with the condition of the emancipated slaves. Reconstruction uh, represented a lost opportunity, a moment when black and white labor could have united to seek common goals, but failed to do so. A union of democratic forces never took place. Yep. Yeah, and that, and that I think... Uh, that lesson is highly, highly relevant for today. That it 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 was back then, and it is now very much a you will hang together or you will hang separately type of situation. Um, uh, be, because you know the if if you're the organizers, and there were people saying this at the time, black and white, uh, that like if you don't, if all the laborers don't come together in some kind of like mass union, mass mass or organization of some sort, you're never going to have a decently uh, egalitarian democracy because all the power is going to end up in the hands of capitalists. You know, you're going to have like your sort of democratic character cored out and, you know, labor is just going to be like repressed to the point of like lose effectively losing a lot of its civil liberties. And literally in the case of the South, um, Southern, Southern black people. And that is exactly what happened. And, and this is also reminiscent of today and perhaps some of the quote-unquote white working class that are Trump supporters. Uh, see if this quote resonates with you from, from Foner. White workers were not conscious of themselves as a working class with its own identity and interests. Rather, they, were celebrate, they celebrated the promise of social mobility, the opportunity to escape the status of, of, status of wage labor altogether, while blacks, because of slavery, were acutely aware of the inequalities in American life. White labor saw the society as fundamentally just. Yeah. Yeah, you... you, you. I don't know what you call it, false consciousness or just like, like a, like bad ideology, bad, bad thinking. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's not true, man. Right. Right. I, I, perhaps that's the through line of so many of these problems is the, the inability to see the interconnectedness of the, of those who are exploited by capital and the need to have solidarity therefore, and fight for all the different, right? Like in so, insofar as intersectionality is useful, it's useful in seeing that like the different forms of oppression are all related in the uniformity of the, uh, like the nature of the oppression being, um, exploitation by the capitalist class and the need for all those different groups to kind of pull together. And it's not just economic exploitation, it's discrimination, um, in, in manifest way, like manifold ways, but, um, there is a long tradition of dividing and conquering various oppressed groups and pitting them against each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And people come to, you know, 
they come to believe such things and it may, you know, as we were talking about in our previous episode, may come to provide some sort of like sense of status, but it's the, the cost, the price is high, especially if you're a poor person. Um, I think relatedly, uh, this, um, so to get back to the history a little bit, uh, there, there, what, what basically broke reconstruction was the crisis of 1873. So this was a big, um, financial crisis and, uh, it, it, uh, I'm not actually sure what it was centered in railroads probably, but anyways, big, big financial crisis, big depression that followed and and actually wasn't a full recovery for like 20 years until they discovered a bunch of gold in South Africa. And that was a sort of inflationary, you know, stimulus more or less. Um, but so Republicans had been the huge dominant party because, you know, the Democrats at that time were the party of treason and rebellion and they lost the war and the you know for a while the republicans like refused to to seat their uh representatives um but when the depression happened like uh the like voters did the thing of blaming the incumbent party um and it illustrated the fact that this was an alliance between on the one hand like big business in the north and on the other hand the very the bottom of the working class in the south the most loyal voters in the republican party were um a bla- you know southern black people for obvious reasons and yet uh when it came time to you know the 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 depression hit 1874 i believe congress is trying to pass some sort of an economic stimulus they had a an inflation bill they wanted to pass which was a kind of like moderate like coinage they wanted to print more money basically to try to like get the economy going and uh grant vetoed it um and he he vetoed it more or less on the influence of big business capitalists in the north and the result was that it was like the single biggest swing election in the 19th century um democrats got or republicans got absolutely crushed they lost control of the house and, um, you know, it, it basically just sort of cracked, o- cracked open this, the political economy question of the, 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 the political economy, like basis rather of the Republican party, because you had on the one hand, big business capitalists in the North who wanted hard money, austerity, and, um, you know, conservative economic policy. And on the other hand, black people in the South who wanted, you know, it was like working class policy, stimulus. That was like, they weren't particularly arguing for that exactly, but like that was what they wanted. And so it ended up pushing, like knocking power to the Democrats. And from then on, it was just a matter of time. And in 1876, uh, the, the, uh, it was a super close election. It ended up disputed. The, the history is quite tangled, but they basically re- Republicans ended up um, agreeing to abandon the South, 
stop trying to enforce reconstruction and and they get to keep the presidency in return and so at that point black people like lost their their protection of their suffrage rights and eventually lost them in in every state in the confederacy yeah to varying degrees and then by the end of the um that depressionary period um you have a huge wave of, of immigration from Europe coming, um, mm-hmm. right? So it just changes the political landscape a bit more from there. Yeah, and this I think you know it is is uh, you could totally imagine Democrats ending up in a similar type of bind, and they kind of they kind of were in a sense in 2010, you know, because you had this this. Uh, you know the the coalition is minorities college educated liberals but like a significant fraction of neoliberal type of you know silicon valley capitalists and so forth and so when the time came to deal with the economic crash they were hesitant they were a little a uh, little worried and and ended up not fixing it and republicans they got the the swing election in 2010 because unemployment was really high, and so this I think you know it it the the lesson is that you need to do both to to achieve social justice you have to have the political democracy and you have to have the economic democracy at the same time, and in the in uh reconstruction the fatal flaw was that they never set the they never set black people up on a sound economic base and they didn't have a sound economic policy platform for them either and that you know we'll probably discuss this maybe a different time but there was an opportunity even after um reconstruction you know alex gorovich uh writes about this in the, the knights of labor movement and uh, the ways in which true freedom was was really need, needing to be tethered to land ownership and uh, the ability to economically um, be free from wage slavery. And so wage slavery was still a form of slavery that needed to be ended. And, and that could have been a really revolutionary thing had it succeeded. Yeah, and you saw after, you know, because the, the economic pain didn't go away, not even for white people. And so this was like after the end of reconstruction you saw the rise of the populist party um which was you know about kind of ham-fisted or sort of like slightly weird attempts to alleviate the depression and it did sort of jumble up the party politics to some degree um you know democrats ended up appropriating a lot of that platform you know in 1896 uh William Jennings Bryan ran on free silver platform. I think to this day, that was the most expensive election in American history as a percentage of GDP. So like the, the big, big business Republicans were freaked out. Um, but yeah, at any rate, you know, this, this, an, another, um, in, in keeping with the, the, the souls of black folk, like in sort of like drilling down on the actual reality of the South. Um, another great thing about black reconstruction is the depiction of how redemption, which was the, the end of reconstruction, these guys called themselves the redeemers. 
to restore white supremacist rule in the South. Um, it was just accomplished with like mass terrorism, um, like pretty much from uh, from about 1866. There's just consistent attempts through violent uh, violent acts against civilians, and you know, uh, you know, ordinary people just trying to exercise their democratic rights to suppress those people and get them back into a, a condition of, uh, you know, just subservient. You know, the, the reestablish a caste system. And in fact, gosh, I get the, 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 remember Jonestown? There's the, there's like the, the, the Congressman Leo Ryan from California who was murdered by the Jonestown cultists. He was the second Congressman killed in action who's murdered. Uh, well, you know, in the line of duty, basically in the line of being a Congressman. Um, the other one, yeah, so the the first congressman uh to be killed was James uh Hines or Hines H I N D S. Uh he he was a co- congressman from Arkansas and he was uh, uh what they would call us uh a scalawag um uh, or a carpetbagger actually. No, he's from he's from New York and he be and he uh What's the difference between a scalawag and a carpetbagger? A scalawag is a is a w- white southerner who joined up with the I Republicans see. after gotcha. the Civil War. Carpetbaggers are white northerners who it's went the to the yin south. to the yang, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, anyways, he was ag- advocating for you know black civil rights, Republican Party, and um, he was campaigning for Grant in 1868, and uh, he was he was shot and killed by the KKK. Um. And and you know this uh, the, this that's just the most high profile death. There's hundreds and hundreds of people were killed by white terrorists. Most of them ex Confederate Confederate veterans. And um, yeah, I mean, as du, du Bois goes into, you know, that this was it was like a sort of low level civil war for a lot of the country. And this is one of the things Grant did was when the KKK first came up. And it was just this like this gruesome butchery of of people. He got really upset and he sicked the Justice Department on them. And they basically broke up the entire organization. Like they they, you know, they they did like a as what I don't the FBI didn't exist at that time, but they did comprehensive prosecute investigation and prosecution of people, you know using you know capturing people using them to inform on others and rolling up the whole organization and they basically broke it apart but that wasn't just until they lost their their econ- political economic base and after that you know it was it, it grant didn't have the political support to keep his pros- uh, persecution of, of white terrorism at the- can, can we come back to what you were starting to say about the way that justice or social justice however you want to think of it um, today requires learning the lesson of the Reconstruction era in terms of not separating the goals of political equality and economic equality. I don't even know if equality is the word, but economic justice and, and uh, political justice um, or, or the need to struggle for um, 
those oppressed peoples to not just have the right to vote and not just to be killed by the police state uh, indiscriminately, but um, not not necessarily over and above that, but alongside that, uh, and just as important is um, the need to have a sustained path to economic freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... that uh... And what does that mean exactly? I guess there's there's sort of two aspects of that I would point out. You know, the the lesson of history is that you uh you need a um like the 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 fundamental task of a of a democratic government uh you know, if if you're in charge of a democratic country, you've got to manage the economy properly or you're going to get thrown out of office. Um and so to have like a like a solid program there and particularly a way to deal with the recessions and financial crises uh that is going to require you know sound thinking on economic questions um and then at the same time you know obviously the you know if if people are going to have so have social justice like i mean that just includes the right to vote sort of by definition, but also, you know, like uh, to be able to fight against discrimination and stuff and be able to sort of like work against those things, full, you know, civil rights for all people is kind of part of that. Um, but maybe, you know, uh, most importantly in a modern context, like you don't have social justice unless you have economic, like, like a like a decent economic condition i think this is a thing you know we're, you're already seeing attempts to cast bernie sanders as racist just uh, because um you know he he focuses a lot on the ec- economic deprivation and um you know it's like he's certainly been tone deaf on a few occasions but like it it is absolutely the case that a huge factor a huge aspect of racism and you know homophobia transphobia and so on and so forth uh ableism probably especially ableism is economic deprivation you need money to live a good life in this in this country or any country you know you need access to material resources and um, if you leave that out, if you sort of try to do Hillary Clinton, you know, like what we need is procedural justice and, you know, a return to voting rights and stuff like all that is important, but it leaves out a lot of the picture. And in the case of Clinton and people like her, it leaves it out because she's also trying to court big business and the same mistake that Grant made when he was president, you know. And so that's the thing you got to watch out for. Right. And and also political discrimination and cultural discrimination will always piggyback upon exploited classes economically being at a disadvantage to oppose that oppression. Right. So it, it usually goes together. People that are in um, positions of, of economic uh, advantage are all the more likely to be able to indiscriminately um, harm others who, who don't have the leverage economically to, to do otherwise. So it's a form of freedom and, and defense against all forms of discrimination to empower people and decommodify as much as possible uh, the ability of people to feed, shelter, um, t- treat their, their health, 
these fundamental aspects of human life, if that's not bound up with the wage slavery and the slavery of the tyranny of, of private authoritarian governments we call corporations, then, <laughs> then that is definitely a road to, to all kinds of emancipatory uh, social justice. Yeah, and when, you know, when people have money in their pockets, they can hire a lawyer, they can make bail, they could sue a policeman. Influence you know? politics. Yeah, right. They could make a donation. Like, just, these things matter. Sociologically, there's a group called the missing class because they're not tracked by the government because they're too um, economically advantaged to receive welfare benefits. Uh, but they're basically like uh, an accident away or a lost job away from falling below the poverty line and uh, are not wealthy enough to be even middle class where they have the, you know, uh, a kind of coalition that that. Um, has political voice and is heard. Uh, they're they're working often two jobs or, or too um, struggling too hard to just make it um, economically. They don't really have time to have political agency uh, effectuated. And so this is a whole group of people that are literally not even counted um, very often and and uh, totally have no voice. So it's large groups of people that um, because of their economic situation have no political voice, even when it's not explicit discrimination. Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely, that's definitely the case to varying degrees, you know, and, and across huge swaths of the population. Um, Any last thoughts on, on Du Bois? Uh, yeah, I'm, very much worth reading, you know. He's an excellent writer, even if the book is a little bit uh, jumbled at times. Um, and, you know, uh, people have kind of disputed this or that aspect of his interpretation. Like they say that he, he doesn't really have much about the black church, which I think is a very, you know, that's like a very important institution. Um, but, uh, but, you know, basically... That is now the dominant, and I would say inarguably the correct interpretation in broad strokes of the Reconstruction period. You know, he he was he was trying to do the work of like twenty big books at all the same time, and basically got it done. And that was that was how like smart of a guy he he was. That good. Yeah. So Black Reconstruction in America and Souls of Black Folk. Um, in different ways, brilliant and, and beautiful and, and worth worth your time for what they illuminate and also how they might inspire action for justice. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Adios. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going.